Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. So welcome back to the podcast. And in case you didn't notice, uh, our recording day is Friday and it was July 3rd and I realized, oh, we don't have to work today. So there was no episode last week. (laughs) But we're back. I love the fact that you texted me that on like Thursday night. Hey, uh, are we getting up in the morning for a recording? (laughs) Well, you know what? I figured out what happened. So normally when there's like a holiday, there's all the water cooler talk about what what are you doing the holiday weekend, yada, yada, right? Well, number one, there's no water cooler talk because there's no water coolers with everybody. And number two, all my water cooler colleagues don't celebrate that holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the non-Americans. Well, because we had Daryl celebrating Canada Day on the Wednesday, and then we were celebrating on the Saturday of Independence Day in America. So any of those holidays for me still after being here for nearly 10 years, unless I see it on my calendar, I always forget, which is bad, I know. But you go by your youth, I think, with those kind of things, traditions. But hopefully we didn't cause too much uh, pain and suffering for people listening to other... We provided the opportunity to listen to other shows, so uh, aren't we good? Aren't we good? <laughs> That's right. Broaden, broaden your horizons. And so we're back, and our presence would show that we're back because there's a big announcement on presence in the in the graph. I know, uh, which I'm super impressed with. Like when we shipped presence, immediately I was like, "Why are we not doing webhooks? Like this seems like a no-brainer. Like let us know when the status changes. Don't pull the hell out of the API to find out." Yeah, the team turned around webhooks really, really quickly, which is great. It's now in beta. You can go use that um, Isaac Levine's presence indicator light thing. Um, he's in the process of tweaking that open source project to use webhooks as opposed to polling the API. Uh, and then we're also going to get Ananya on the show in a few weeks, who is the lead PM on those APIs in the cloud communications team. So yeah, that was pretty exciting to get that out there as and also so quickly after kind of announcing a build that those APIs even existed. Yeah, love to see the team firing on all cylinders. So that's great. And um, I think uh, Nanya, she was on the the Graph Community call. Was that uh, did I see her? Or was that yeah? So that was just the last week. Yeah. So yeah, first Tuesday of the month is the Graph Community call. So and she came on to talk about the webhooks and some of the other things they're working on there. And um, we had Nicholas talk about the search APIs, and she could probably get him on the show too. Um, so yeah, if you into watching video content. All those community calls from SharePoint and the Graph and Teams are all available on YouTube. So check those out. They're all in the show notes as well. You know, just quickly on that, Beth Pan in the Microsoft Graph Toolkit uh, V-Team has been leading this a lap around the Microsoft Graph Toolkit. And they're up to day 15 now. And uh, they're talking about, you know, good resources and where you can see the roadmap and, you know, next steps and stuff. So if you haven't seen that, I'd really recommend checking it out because... The toolkit is such a great way of getting quickly integrated into your applications with like really nice UI that looks and feels like our own applications and does all the binding work and uses fluent UI under the covers and um, uses MSAO and so just does a lot of the acceleration of building apps. Yes, I have yet to drop it into any code because none of my code works in the browser lately. So <laughs> it's certainly on my list <laughs> for the for the next thing. So I'd love to see that. Um, in the community, there is a link that you found nice one talking about Microsoft Teams messaging extensions. Have you played with this? Have you written any code? I know it's kind of outside the common 
you know, sweet spot of people. You know, it's kind of interesting. I've I am always getting slapped by the team's platform team for immediately like snapping to well, teams is just taps. And obviously, you know, it's not because the product that you build, but, um, you know, there's bots and um, all the APIs that you can go connect to in a UI-less world. Um, but there's also other places and messaging extensions is one of those. And Marcus Moller's post is about having a message extension that essentially when you're typing a message in the bottom, you kind of got like the GIF and the smiley face for adding emoji icons and stickers, which I never use. And there's a bunch of other things you can add there. And so you can extend that by that toolbar. And so what he's done is he has a docs review message extension that lists all of the docs that are in a state of review in a document library uh, relevant to the team site files document library. It all gets very hard to verbally do that without having a diagram. And then when you pick that document, it embeds that into the message as a, uh, an adaptive card. And so in his blog post, he's going through that process of how he's built that message extension, connecting to the graph to get the SharePoint data um, and, you know, rendering that on the screen in adaptive cards and then injecting the card in there. So, um, you know, if you haven't seen Marcus's stuff before, he's on my you know, list of graph bloggers that I have in my Feedly. Um, so I'd recommend checking out his blog and you know, subscribing to it as well. Yeah, what I love about this, uh, so messaging extensions have been around in Teams from the beginning, and they were origi- they were originally called Compose extensions, which I think make is a better it's a better yeah that's right vernacular, right? I'm composing totally a message makes and it more helps. sense. Why did we change that? <laughs> you know, and then the the samples or the training material that I wrote you know decades ago it feels like covered messaging extensions. But what's nice about what Marcus did is it does the authentication because when I click on that little button that says help me compose a message, in this particular example. Well, in order to call SharePoint, we want to do that with the user's context, right? So this, I love that he's actually taken, it's not just a, here's how to get started with the technology. It's an actual the use case that covers all the ins and outs of things that you would typically do, not just your sample, you know, get data out of a, out of memory. So it's a, it's a great. Totally. Yeah. The amount of times, yeah, I'm having a conversation about a doc where it'd be just great to be able to go and just pick what I've been working on within this team, as opposed to kind of going into another context, grabbing it and putting it in the link, especially when it's very narrow on its documents that need review um, because he's flagged it that way, which is nice. Yeah. And and, and you have humans in a team that are working together toward a specific goal. So, you know, based on the context of the channel that this message is being posted to, you can further subset the list of documents, right? We know it's this team or this channel Mm -hmm. and it's this group of people. So it's really a great way to move along. So great example by Marcus really glad to see that and then this other blogger we're going to talk about like he's a little bit of a shady character but we figured we'd give him some <laughs> limelight on the show uh, his name is every once in a while I do yeah, something worthwhile you never his know his name is Paul Schiffline <laughs> or something like that I don't know um, but he wrote about this thing with SPFX and Code Spaces. What's all that about, Paul? So, uh, Code Spaces is our subject of our episode this week. But what the the idea around Code Spaces is that I can use Visual Studio Code or Visual Studio and have it connect to a remote computer that is hosting the 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 code that I'm writing, or you know the re- so in this particular example, it's like a repo. So so I can have a remote computer which in this case is a container, but this remote system does a git pull and it has 
this file stored on its computer and I use Visual Studio Code on my local machine to connect to that and make my changes and do what I need to do and then I can do a obviously if I'm if I'm committing my changes to GitHub why do I need to keep a copy locally right mm -hmm. and and so the this use case that intrigued me is I wanted to submit a PR to a project in the PNP, but I, I don't have all the, I don't want to download all the PNP repos to find it, whatever. So by doing this, boom, click out, have the remote computer do it, I can make my changes, commit it in, and submit a PR all right there. And on top of that, it costs, you know, like 30 cents an hour or something, some crazy small number. Right. So it's a great idea. And I actually went through and did some setup because one of our interns was coming in. And rather than have a, how long do you have to spend to set up a, a dev environment for SharePoint, whereas, boom, hit the button that says create a, a workspace and then have at it. So the, 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 the gist of this blog post is to go through and say, here's how here's some SharePointy things you can do to the code spaces out of the box and make yourself productive if you're going to be doing a quick bug fix or a PR review or something that's not necessarily full-fledged, you know, development for six weeks. But, um, yeah, so that, that was the idea around that. So uh, um, I really was uh, excited how it worked rather well. So it turned out pretty good. Yeah, that's cool. And so, like, without further ado, we can jump into the show. Uh, love speaking to Nick. And I think we do a great job of explaining everything that CoSpaces is, you know, built for. And, um, you know, we've got a bunch of really good shows coming up in the future. And if you want more, please reach out to us on our Twitter handle, m365 Developer podcast and um we can go from there all right have a great week this week on the episode we have nick molnar welcome nick hey guys how's it going thanks for having me hey nick will you uh tell our listeners a little bit about yourself yeah sure uh my name is Nick Molnar, so we got that down. Uh, I'm a program manager uh, at Microsoft. I work on the CodeSpaces team uh, from home uh, at my home office in Austin, Texas. And for those that are trying to Google you, you're Nick, but without the C. Yeah, uh, N-I-K. So, like, my handle on every service that's ever existed is N-I-K-M-D-2-3. Twitter, GitHub, Gmail, LinkedIn. I don't know. Pick a service. If I'm on it, that's my handle. Okay, so 23 for a start. I'm always intrigued by people who throw numbers on usernames. <laughs> okay, so here's the story. I'm a kid in high school. I get my first access to the internet from my uncle, my AOL account. And so I name my handle, my name, Nick, like everybody else tries to do. Of course, that's not available on AOL. So I throw on the initials for my high school, SD, Nick SD for South Dade. Nope, that doesn't work. So I throw a one on there. It works. I have that handle for about three months until my uncle cancels that AOL account. And then a couple months later, recreates a new one. So I can't use Nick SD1 anymore. <laughs> and now I'm going to a new school in Miami-Dade. So Nick MD. Uh, but the 23 was for my favorite baseball player, the all-star catcher for the Florida Marlins, Charles Johnson. There you go. <laughs> it is the worst handle of all time, but the benefit of having... Is, a, I mean, no one's going to guess no, it, though. The, the benefit of having such a horrible handle is it's available on every service. Everywhere, yeah. yeah. So it's consistent. You're never going to have that problem. Yeah. No. Security by obsc obscurity. To me, the most depressing part of that the story is it was high school when you were getting internet. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I was a bit of a late bloomer. We didn't really have computers in my household until 
until I was like 14 and then the internet, you know, kind of <laughs> happened for me a couple of years later. Um, and so um, how long have you been at Microsoft for? Uh, five years this week, actually. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Where were you before Microsoft? Oh, I've been all over the place. I've, just, I've been a developer my whole life. Uh, my first job at 16 years old was as a programmer. That's all I've ever done. Uh, but before Microsoft, I worked for a partner company called Redgate, where I was in developer relations and I worked on open source stuff for them. I was a consultant before that in New York City, kind of working at big bank and, and retail shops. I had a couple of startups I was involved with before that. So I worked for Lockheed Martin in defense contracting. I kind of done a little bit of everything. Redgate definitely saved me with the database compare tool back in the day in Australia. Let me tell yeah, you that much. Exactly. The thing was great. Yeah, they were a fun group of people to work with. So, so you mentioned you're working remotely in Austin, Texas, and that kind of leads us into why you're on the show this week, working remotely. And so the, the subject is Visual Studio Code Spaces, I think is what the name is. So can you tell us uh, how does Code Spaces, what is it? How does it help us work remotely? So the easiest way to kind of think about Visual Studio Code Spaces is one, that it's a bit of a misnomer because it's an Azure service. But the Azure VM service, as great as it is, is kind of general purpose, right? You could grab a VM and do whatever you want to with it. Codespaces is very much built by developers for developers. And so what we're really giving you is a VM, an environment to edit, build, and run your source code that runs up in the cloud, which means that whether you are kind of on the road a lot, you're a road warrior, which you know travel is a bit limited right now, or you're stuck at home, maybe on a personal device that might be a little bit less powered than what you had sitting under your desk at your office. You can connect to these online environments and kind of leverage the power of Azure to scale horizontally, scale vertically. You can throw more RAM and CPU at your machine if you need a little bit more of that, maybe just for an hour. Um, or you can kind of keep it as high as, as you need it to for as long as you want to. Or you can have multiple environments if you're running, working on a bunch of different projects or even one project. You have one environment for just reviewing a PR and then you throw it away and you got another PR tomorrow. Click the button. 30 seconds later, you have a fully configured development environment. And like I said, it's, it's built kind of by developers for developers. So that dev environment gives you everything that you need. When you think about getting a brand new machine and all of the things that you need to install to be successful to work on some project, right? You got to install a Git, then you download the source code, and then you install your editor, and then you install all your editor extensions, and then you install whatever runtime that source code needs. Maybe that's Node or .NET or something like that, right? And then you open up your terminal and you start tweaking the terminal and all of those things. Right? It can take you know, anywhere from four hours to a couple of weeks, depending on the environment that you're in, to, get, to kind of get your dev machine ready to go. Uh, and so... The ability to just click a button within 30 seconds, have that environment makes it really easy for people who are working from home to not have to worry about procuring software, getting it on their personal machine and kind of doing all of these things. Or if you're just working on a new project, great. 30 seconds, you click a button um, and you're up and running on that new project. And where does the smarts of that happen, Nick? Like, obviously, the VM spinning up is pulling all that down. What What is actually going across the wire? Like, if I am doing a build on Visual Studio Code, what what is the actual communication going down the wire to, to Azure to kind of make that all magic happen and then me see the results of that compile and run? Yeah, so the way to think about it is the, the code space that runs up in the cloud Effectively, what we've done is we've taken the architecture of our editors, right? So I'll talk about 
VS Code because that's the thing that's the most immediately available. We've taken VS Code and we've effectively ripped it into two. And so all of those compute-oriented tasks that VS Code maybe would have done for you in the past on your local machine, so, so the build, the debug, the IntelliSense, all of those kinds of things, that is all running up in the cloud in this environment, in this code space. And then your local install of VS Code that's connected to it, or you know, the browser-based editor that we have if you're, if you're working in the browser, is effectively a very thin rendering layer that is just offloading all of the compute off to the code space that's running in the cloud. You know, you can kind of think of this in some ways as maybe you've used like a remote desktop connection or VDI in the past to, to run a developer workload up in the cloud. In those scenarios, really what you're doing across those protocols is you're sending bitmap images across the wire, right, to see kind of how the screen is being changed and it can be pretty bandwidth intensive. We're not taking that approach. The approach that we're taking is we're just passing around the context required by the editor to allow you to edit. So we're passing around the file when you request it, right? And you know these are text files that compress very well or just the build context that's necessary to fill in the dropdown list and on your IntelliSense. Really kind of all of the compute is happening up in the cloud to your question, Jeremy. We're sending down just a thin amount of context information to help the local renderer, the web-based renderer, give you the experience that you kind of love and expect. That's kind of it. That's that's the way that it works. So with that in mind, does that mean that like hypothetically, if I was on an iPad in a browser, I could do this too? It does. Like down that same scenario? Yep, exactly. Wow, okay. And that's that's something that people are, are very excited about. Um, yeah, right no now joke. The ability to use their iPad. So I mean, right now, just kind of in full transparency, an iPad is very much a touch-first device, mm-hmm. and something like an iPad Pro is really kind of where our experience is right now, where you have some kind of a pointer and you have an actual keyboard, uh, because VS Code was kind of built with you know keyboard and mice type input um, first and foremost. But you know you could imagine a future where we better support things like touch, um, and then you can really you know just do a pull review in your lap. On your sitting on my my on hammock on the, on my deck kind of th- approach of life exactly yes and in the documentation that I've seen I'm not sure if it was the announcement post or or what but the, that that is kind of the sweet spot initially is that I can create a code space and tell it to get a PR from a certain repo and look at the code the idea there of course is I'm not necessarily building anything I'm just reviewing it so that's kind of a nice kind of use case and I like that. But what I'm wondering, though, is do, do you see a code space being kept around for a while? I mean, if I if I and this question comes from like the SharePoint context where there's some things I have to do to make the environment work for a SharePoint SPFX development. That's not part of your core scenario because you're not SharePoint. right? I get that. So would you envision these code spaces being kept around like I would keep a VM for a while or are you pushing toward? Well, just automate the setup and throw it away when you're done. It's really a up to you. We support both models. So we do want to make it so that it's very easy for you to set one of these things up. So we will kind of encourage you to automate as much of that box setup as you can, right? We have a a file format that we call dev container, where you can kind of set up some scripts and things like that. If it's something that you're going to have to do every time you create an environment, we would like to make that as easy to automate for you as possible. Maybe that's just not what you're into, or maybe you can't do that. And so then that's fine. You can leave the environment sitting around for as long as you want. Uh, And in fact, the way that our business model works, our pricing model, is you pay for while you're actively doing development. 
if Paul, you were doing development and you stopped to take a very important podcast meeting or something like that, let's say, you know, you can configure how long you want it to be before we'll shut down that VM on you. And we, and we do that specifically to save you money, right? So maybe you're using a standard environment, which costs about 17 cents an hour, and you have it configured for after 30 minutes of an activity to shut down. We'll shut down that VM. We'll save all of your state. So you can come back tomorrow or the next day and say, okay, give, give this environment back to me and we'll spin up a VM. We'll attach that disk that has all your state to it and you'll pick up just right where you left off. And so, yes, we have many, many customers who leave these things sitting around for months at a time without ever deleting it because that's just the one that they need. And then we have other customers who like to create a new one every single day. Um, and then they don't even think about doing something like a Git pool because when they create a new one, we get them, you know, the latest version of the source code. And how does that work with the URLs then? So I, I saw your demo from the build session, which I loved, by the way. Thank you. Just natural presenter and storyteller. Just was like, just totally mesmerized by it. The URL that it spins up for that environment, um, I'm guessing that's coming from a pool of URLs. And I think to Paul's point with SharePoint with SPFX, but also team's development that relies heavily on a URL being part of a manifest file that gets uploaded into the catalog for teams. That's going to keep revving every time you spin up those environments. So could I put ngrok commands into your process when it's spinning up the VM to set up an ngrok URL that I have and then the manifest I don't have to go change every time? Is that kind of a way around it? So the URL stays persistent for your environment. So Jeremy, if you create an environment today, it basically gets assigned an ID and it's going to stay that ID indefinitely. Oh, okay. And so if you do kind of port forwarding, right? So you, you share whatever port um, you want teams to access, that would be the same URL. So, so the good news is theoretically, you don't really need to worry about this. We have started from a very security conscious standpoint first. And what that means is anytime that you share a URL in your environment, only you have access to it. So you can share it from the remote to your local machine, but you, Jeremy, are the only person that has access to it, which means that Teams or any kind of other won't be able to access it today. This is something that we're thinking about and working on. All their good kind of workaround for today is exactly what you suggested. You have full control over your code space and you can install any tooling that you want to, including NGROC. And so you can just kind of get around that um, by leveraging NGROC and let it connect. Yeah, okay. How, what's the magic you're doing to make that URL only work for me? Uh, so actually the the networking is pretty interesting that we use for code spaces because as we said, security minded first. So the code space itself makes an outgoing connection to another Azure service called Azure Relay. Oh, okay. And then the individual clients, whether it's the browser or VS Code, connects to that same Azure Relay, and that's all happening over an encrypted, authenticated, and authorized connection, right? So your outgoing client makes an out, so your client makes an outgoing connection, your remote makes an outgoing connection, and then Azure Relay ties them together. And then when you do a port forward, we're effectively multiplexing over that connection. That's really smart. Which is why the whole the whole bundle is kind of encrypted end to end, which is great from a security perspective. But in this case, you kind of want to be able to open up that port mm -hmm. a little bit more so that some public service, you know, like a webhook kind of scenario would work. And, and as I said, that's something that we're kind of. And I guess for the scenarios where it's not like a public repo that you're coding against, and this is like an internal company that's got a private repo working on the source code of Microsoft Teams or something, then obviously you don't want that easily accessible publicly. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. 
So I want to um, go back a little bit to, to what I was asking about keeping this around. And, and you, I mentioned the automate the setup and the natural thing that, or when, when I was kicking the tires, the first thing I thought of was, you know, I've done all these setup th tasks in my build definition, which is also hosted in the cloud. So is there any correlation between code spaces and build agents? Or is that really just Paul drawing a, a line that really doesn't exist? Well, I mean, I think the correlation could exist. It depends on how your your CI system is set up and and how you're um, kind of running things together. So a, a couple of examples, right? Like so, for my CI, I use GitHub Actions, right? So my actions definitions are in my repo right next to my source control. The same way that my dev container, which is the code space configuration file, sits right there as well. And then depending on your scenario, like for me, I have a Docker file that I define for both my CI and my code space. And so using a feature of Docker called targets, I actually have one Docker file. I have my kind of most permissive in terms of like, it has the most amount of tooling installed on it at the top layer, the top target. And that's what I do development against and code spaces targets at that. But then my CI CD basically just sheds off some of that stuff and my CI version. And so it's all one, one Docker file for both CI and code spaces. So it, it, I'm kind of dancing around the, the direct question though, Paul, because there is no direct tie except for the fact that the raw artifacts, depending on your setup and configuration could be shared. And that was something that I wanted to make sure was happening, just less to maintain um, in terms of the, the raw artifacts for my build system and, and my dev system. So then this is probably a feature request and we'll get to any user voice site you have later. But if I if I have my build defined in YAML with doing a bunch of tasks and targets, why do I need this dev container thing? Can we can we get some future merged between how I describe my code space environment versus defining my CI CD environment? It, it just seems to me that it, um, there's an opportunity there to, to streamline. Right. Just because of, you know, if I'm writing it once, why do I have to write it in three different, you know, write it once in YAML, write it once in Dockerfile, write it once in dev container. It seems an opportunity there or Paul is totally confused. So one of those two scenarios, right? <laughs> well, I don't know if, if one is exclusive of the other <laughs> to be fair, but um, yeah. no, I, I think, I think it's good feedback. I think it depends on some of the scenarios, right? There are some things that are done in a dev container that would not be natural to do in a Docker file. Like, saying which port you want the service to automatically forward or setting a VS code setting or saying that you want it to download and install this extension, right? That's that's not like a natural language built into Docker file for, for doing that or in, or in the YAML. But yeah, I, I, I agree with the feedback in general that we would like to reduce the surface area of configuration across all of these things. And um, I think that's something that, you know, you'll, you'll kind of see us think about and march towards as we go. Actually, I guess we've been talking about this and we haven't kind of quite taken a step back to say. So we announced Code Spaces in November. Actually, in November, we announced something called Visual Studio Online. And uh, at the end of April, we renamed that to Code Spaces. Just because we're Microsoft and we have yeah. to do that. Like we just, there's no way we can release something with no, the same name. No. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the naming is, is fun and it takes up a good amount of my life. Uh, but, you know, that is what it is. So, um, but what we announced in November, you know, besides the wrong name, was that we were in public preview and we are continue to be in public preview. And we're working through all this kind of great feedback as we move towards GA. And then at build this year, so just a few weeks ago, actually in the build timeframe, also at, at GitHub Satellite, we announced 
two private previews that kind of go along naturally with that public preview. One is support for the Visual Studio IDE, not just VS Code, connecting to these code spaces. And then the other one is a really nice native GitHub integration. So if you're a GitHub user, you know, you're just a click away from using code spaces and um, it's all very streamlined. So if you're in that private preview, you can like nominate a repo to be part of it and the button will show up and you just click it and go. You just nominate yourself. And so if you have access to the repo, then you're able to see that button. It's not a per repo basis, it's a per user basis. And so as long as that file that you're talking about is in the repo, the button will will show? The button will show no matter what. So the file that this dev container is not required. The dev container is configuration that you can put if you have some more specific configuration that you need to put in place that we don't automatically pick up otherwise. But the idea is you should be able to walk up to any repo and ask CodeSpace to, hey, give me a code space for some random repo that you don't own where the user didn't put any configuration in there. Yeah. And we do everything that we can to give you a good experience and figure it out. And in the world of VM, the uh, Windows versus Linux, what are these things? I'm assuming Linux is going to give you broader support with GitHub repos. Or can you pick? Uh, you, you'll be able to pick. So I, I mentioned that private preview that we have right now that gives you Visual yeah. Studio support kind of bundled in with that private preview is the ability to pick a Windows-based right. code space. So in the, and I know this is kind of confusing. We have a lot of things going on. I, there must be an awesome matrix diagram somewhere. There, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, <laughs> there's the, the docs kind of walk you through all of this, right? But the thing that is in public preview today that any random user can go and get access to is going to be Linux-based environments. Yeah. And then yeah, if you yeah. sign up for the private preview and get onboarded to that, um, there's a wait list, but if you got into that, then you would be able to also create Windows-based environments. That's cool. And is there a scenario where you could build a UWP app in this way? Like it seems very web-based from the way you're describing it right now. It, it is very much um, kind of cloud native or you know, not doing any kind of graphical rendering based. So if you're building a web API, a web app, a terminal app, a library, all of those things work very well today. Um, we have done some work, um, actually you all will like this. Um, we've worked with the Microsoft teams team yeah. to leverage their infrastructure. So the same infrastructure in the call that we're having right now to, to enable screen sharing, to enable you to automatically screen share from a remote. So the experience would be, I press F5 on my UWP app to, to launch it and to start debugging. And on the remote side, we would see that oh, new process cool. spin up. We would automatically share just that screen, not the whole, not the whole desktop, just the screen of that app or any kind of other windows that it spawns yeah. with you locally in an interactive way. Uh, and it actually works quite well. I actually um, attempted to demo it at Ignite. So if you go and look at my Ignite video, you'll see me try to demo it and it crashed on stage, <laughs> of course. Of course it did. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we, we are we're working through cleaning up that scenario a little bit and making it work a bit better, but that will be the future for something like UWP is we'll have built into kind of screen sharing. That's really cool. So I have a couple questions about that dev container you mentioned. So I know I read in the docs that I can add the dev container to the repo and then those settings get applied when I start. But what if it's not my repo? Can I set up a dev container with all my preferences and have it apply those on any repo I, I clone? or launch or whatever the term is? So let me give you kind of the the short answer and the long answer. Short answer is no. 
not today, but this is some this is feedback that we've heard a bunch, right? Where they want people people want to kind of point to some other dev container because the repo doesn't have it, kind of like a a contrib model or something like that. Maybe like definitely typed if you're familiar with the TypeScript ecosystem. If you don't have the typings, there's another place you can go find typings and apply this. So that is something that um, we have on the backlog and we're thinking about. And you can kind of go see that issue in our public issue tracker on GitHub and add in your feedback as we talk about that. Now, depending on what kind of settings you want to set, dev container is the right way to think about it. But there's really kind of two levers of configuration available. There is dev container, which is customized on a per project basis. So kind of the default story is if the three of us were going to work on a project together, we'd put our dev container in our shared repo. Any of the code spaces that we created off of that same shared repo, we'd have the same customizations, right? So we'd all get the same version of React installed or um, you know whatever other dependencies have. There's also another layer, Paul, which in, this isn't exactly what your question is, but I'm, I'm wondering if this is what you're thinking about of personalizations. And so sure, Nick, Jeremy, and Paul, we could all go work together on this awesome app that we're gonna build together. And we have the same underlying kind of code space definition, but you know, I'm a bit of a night owl, so I like the dark theme. Uh, Paul, you want everything to be light themed. Jeremy wants everything to be spelled with an extra U in it because of his accent. Right? <laughs> he wants his fonts to be different. Maybe we have our own set of dot files that we use to customize our terminal experience or some common Git configurations, things like that. Those are all very much personal decisions that don't affect the project. It's just how we interact with our development stories. And so that, Paul, you can point to another repo or into our settings sync service, and we'll pull all of that opinion down. But it's typically decisions that would be made at a personal dev level, not at a project level, and that is available today. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and, and I guess the basis for that question, again, is I'm kicking around the tires on a SharePoint feedback or SharePoint framework, and I need to do, like, for example, your default container has Node version like 14 or whatever, and they need vo version 10. So running a script to, to do those things, and I know I specify that in the dev container file, and it runs that script and life is good, but if that isn't in the repo, I need to run those manually. So that, that was kind of where I was thinking is, to, you know, to, to do that. Yeah. But then the other alternative to that I thought I saw was that you could specify this uh, Docker information and not, I don't, I'm totally a noob on Docker. But I, I guess my question is, do I have to wait for you to support Windows or can I just point it at a Windows-based container and, and I get what I want now without waiting? You will have to wait for us to support Windows. <laughs> Although <laughs> I haven't done SharePoint development since... SharePoint 07. Well, it's not the, yeah, it doesn't look like that anymore. <laughs> so no, that, that it doesn't look like that anymore, <laughs> no. right? So it's, it's, no. I, my understanding is it's now kind of all in the browser, correct? Well, like, the runtime is yes, but I, my question is more along the lines of what if I'm what if I have a Windows I .NET three web API that's running now, and I don't want to I don't want to rehost that in 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 a, a Linux you know build. I was hoping to start with Windows, but if we have to wait, I get that. But I was just wondering, well, what's that? What is that Docker? image specification let me do how, how crazy can i go yeah so if you want to use windows right now you'll have to sign up for the for that private preview that gives you access to visual studio and, and windows based environments at the same time yeah I, again i don't skew names visual studio 2019 he's nodding for people who can't see it in the audio stream um 
yes. you will have to ha be using that to do Windows environments, or could you do that with Visual Studio Code as well? You could use Visual Studio Code and a Windows environment. That's not a problem. It's just that the okay. right now the state of the private preview is that Windows and Visual Studio are kind of bundled together, so you get access to both okay. when you get added in. So I gotta ask, like, and this is a compliment to you as a PM, but has this been dog food internally for a long time? Because it feels pretty like far along for a beta in terms of like you've had answers to most of these questions. Um, from the feedback I've had from people that have used it, they're like, yeah, this this thing's great that won't be long before it's GA'd. Like, what, how long has this been in the, the minds of pe smart people internally that have kind of glued together all these Azure services to make this a reality? Yeah, I mean, the truth is I'm just really good at BSing. So, <laughs> no, that's a joke. That's a joke. No, the, the, actu the actual truth is, the truth of the matter is the service has been being built for, you know, this specific incarnation of the service has been being built for a little over a year now. The truth of the matter is it has some um, heritage and pedigree and two other well-conceived and, and battle-tested services, which is LiveShare, um, Visual Studio LiveShare, which if, if you're unfamiliar with LiveShare, it is our... Uh, collaboration technology that will allow me and uh, you know one or more other people to collaborate in real time on a code base, right? So if you think about when you're using like Word Online, right? We can all be editing the same document, and I can see Jeremy's cursor and Paul's cursor, and we can see each other typing. It's that kind of exact same concept applied to developers, so we can see each other typing and editing, and we can share the debugger. So we can all be setting breakpoints and inspecting things in the debug mode. We can share the local host, so we can all be looking at the same web app. We can share terminals. Right? So all of that kind of um, collaboration stuff has been in place for maybe two years in addition to this one year. And then, of course, we're, you know, we're building on top of Visual Studio Code and Visual Studio, which have been around for years and years and years. And in particular, Visual Studio Code was built and architected on top of something called Electron, which allows you to run web apps on the desktop. So when you're running VS Code, you're actually running a version of Chromium, and all of VS Code is built in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And so transitioning that to the web, I'm not going to say it was easy, right? but a lot of the underlying technology was in place for the team to kind of go and make that happen. So we've been, you know, kind of long story short, we've been very lucky to be able to partner with people like the VS Code team, like the Live Share team. Of course, we're building on top of these other great Azure services, you know, Azure Storage and Azure Compute, um, and even, you know, our newest partner being GitHub. Um, that was that was a great thing for us to kind of go and, and partner yeah, with. Absolutely. So, um, I, I think the quality that you're seeing is, you know, in many ways, um, because of the work of, of others and the ability to partner. You know, you've thrown the pricing out a little bit, but is it really that simple? Uh, I mean, the, the way that the pricing works is, yeah, you pay while you're active. And so you have a couple of lever, levers as the user to get to, to pick from uh, in terms of pricing. You can, um, and effectively, the, the more resources you're consuming in the cloud, the, the more it costs, right? So we have basic standard and premium instances, uh, and those basically apply to how much compute you get. So at a basic, you get two cores and four gigs of RAM. And then it kind of doubles as you go. So standard is four core, eight gigs of RAM. Premium is eight core, 16 gigs of RAM. And then when you're not connected, you pay a nominal fee for the storage 
for the lifetime of keeping around the environment. So Paul was asking, you know, how long can I keep these environments around? As long as you want to, you're going to be paying that kind of nominal fee to keep it around, or you can de delete it and then you're going to be paying nothing. But it is kind of that simple, yeah. So right now, I can only create three code spaces. Is that a preview limitation or is that the, the plan going forward? Maybe, maybe my question doesn't make sense once you GA. So, so that's a quota thing. It's, it's, it's completely a, a bit of an arbitrary limitation. And all Azure services have some kind of quota caps. And that's to kind of help prevent fraud and abuse, right? People will take a stolen credit card and go spin up thousands of VMs to get Bitcoin mine until they get caught, right? So um, there, are, there are quotas in place. So um, Paul, you can reach out to me and I'll be happy to increase your quota because we, we trust you. We think you're a good guy. I don't, I don't know where you got that <laughs> assumption from, Nick. Yeah. But <laughs> Well, what I was really going to do is I was going to turn down his quota once I got that subscription <laughs> idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, oh, so that makes more sense then, right? And that kind of feeds into the whether if, if, I, can, if I can spin up the, the code space and do what I need and throw it away, I don't need to bump my quota, right? But how, depending on how much setup I can automate or, or have to do manually. Yeah, it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, we're, we're happy to do that. There's just you know, there's there's some checks that go on on the background when you request a quota upgrade in Azure. So that process right now is is manual because we're in preview. At GA timeframe, it would be automated, and so you'll just there's a, already a place in in the Azure portal where you go and say, hey, I need to increase my subscription limits, and then you know most services kind of have an automated process for that, and and we will as well. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I will call out one other thing because you're asking about um, kind of quotas and pricing. What we've been talking about um, entirely for the episode thus far is kind of the managed code space, the thing that we run for you up in Azure. And, you know, I mentioned we have basic premium and uh, standard instance types, and those run and cost from rounding off and depending on your region, about nine cents an hour to about 34 cents an hour, um, depending on how much resources you use. We also have another capability that is free, which is really good for kind of trying out the service if you would like to, or um, perhaps you just have a configuration that we don't support. Maybe you already have a perfectly tuned dev environment on the machine sitting under your desk or some virtual machine running else somewhere. And that's what we call our self-hosted environments. And so literally we have a little agent that you can install on some machine and register with our service. And then it's not fully managed anymore, but because you're providing the compute and the storage yourself, which means that you have to manage the lifecycle of the machine, you have to manage the software that's on that machine, but it will allow you to connect from anywhere um, in very much the same way that you can connect to the code spaces that we manage for you. And so we have a lot of customers who maybe have some specialized hardware that they need plugged into their machine to develop against. And so they go and they use one of these self-hosted code spaces and then they can be in their hammock on their deck and connect to that machine that's underneath their desk at the office, right? And be able to access all of that kind of stuff. And that's and that's free. That's really cool. Yeah, that's where I was getting to with the questioning was like yeah. that kind of bring your own type type approach. That's neat. Yeah, and I've, I've run across many development teams who might have a standard VM image that they, they would push out to developers. And so instead of now pushing it out to a developer, they could just start it up and off they go. Exactly. So, yeah, I like that. Exactly. It's cool. And so where do people get started? What's like the one year old to rule them all? for the VS Code public beta right now. Yeah, if, if you want to get your hands on the bits, the fastest way to do that today is to go to online.visualstudio.com. Remember the original name of the service was 
Visual Studio Online. <laughs> so that URL will be updated. To- it takes six months to update the URL. It yeah. will be updated to codespaces.visualstudio.com. But today, and probably for a while, we'll have the right redirects in place. Online.visualstudio.com is the best place to get started. You can sign up. You can get access to the bits and start playing with that. That's awesome. Uh, well, and actually, from there, there's a link to go to the docs, right? Which will get you to the place where you can sign up for any of the other things that that any of the other goodies that we have in place. Um, but of course, you know, for the GitHub integration, you can go to github.com. And then for the Visual Studio integration, you can go to visualstudio.com and they'll have links to sign up for all of the, the different previews. And then are there canonical samples that you use as good exa- like good demos of this? Or I mean, the fact this works with any GitHub repo that needs to run in Linux, it doesn't really matter, right? Yeah, it doesn't really matter. You know, mileage will vary depending on the project. Some projects just need a little bit more configuration than, than maybe what we already have. So for example, like our support story around Rust uh, today isn't as fantastic as I would like it to be or go. It doesn't mean that you can't use it. It just means that the out-of-the-box experience with no additional configuration provided is not as robust as, as I would like it to be. But Node, .NET, Java, you know, many other languages, we do have a good experience. So you know, really any repo you can go and use, you may have to add more or less configuration. If you want, um, the repo that I use in my uh, and my build session that you mentioned, Jeremy, yeah, is open source. One. Yeah, it's so the baseball one. I know that you're super excited about baseball, Jeremy. Um, I have a lot of hockey pucks and signed shirts behind me, but nothing to do with baseball. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Well, so it's at that ugly <laughs> handle we talked about, right? NickMD23. Yeah. So github.com, NickMD23 slash ballpark tracker. And it sounds like Jeremy just volunteered to fork it and make... I, I'm going to uh, do the PR for yeah, NHL arena. Arena tracker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, but yeah, that, that's a great place to start. And then I assume if there's some show notes or something like that, we can put all of those links in the in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. We can do that for sure. This is the time to do that fork, Jeremy. There's only going to be two arenas, uh, you know, next month. So uh, <laughs> it's really easy. It's really I'm easy really right glad now. that I put a down payment on seats for the Seattle Arena the, the year that the NHL gets canceled. <laughs> Oh, well, lots of other bigger concerns at play, but it's just the irony of how different the world is right now, right? Yeah, it's it's tough. Cool. Well, and I would definitely recommend watching that build video um, for the humor, even if you aren't a baseball fan. Um, it gave me a great tour of all the features as well, like we've talked about here, but sometimes just visually seeing it, it's really good too. I have not yet watched it, but I've kicked the tires on the server, so I'll go back and, and when I'm in my hammock, maybe I'll just watch something instead of actually trying to work. So it sounds great. <laughs> that sounds good. We'll give Paul two points and Jeremy one point for their prep work today. Um, well, Nick, thanks so much for coming on. This was a great conversation, and uh, well, certainly if you're open, we'll have you come back as a service uh, GAs and gets more goodies for folks to talk about. So thanks very much. That sounds fantastic. Thank you all so much for having me. And I look forward to our next uh, food in Damers next time you're up when we all get together with Daryl. <laughs> Yeah, sounds, sounds good. Yeah. So, so the people who don't know, there's a conference room apparently that this team has called Demos and it's three o'clock beer hour. Apparently that seems like every single day that's, that's where the meetings are happening. Only when Daryl's in town, which is not often, yeah, unfortunately, definitely not, not at the moment, unfortunately. Cool. Well, thanks again, mate. I really appreciate you jumping on. That was uh, super useful. Yeah, not a problem. Thank you all. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.M365DevPodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 